movie through the book of Genesis. And if you, this is your first week here, I'm not going to review last weekend, other than that some people think I'm a, a heretic. No, they don't really do that. But the, um, Genesis has been locked down by some people in the conservative evangelical church to mean it can only be interpreted one way. And I think we need to be very careful. For instance, when we think about the, the author of the Pentateuch, and the Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. You have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The Pentateuch, five, Penta, and uh, written books, okay? So essentially, we have the five books that were written by Moses. Now Moses, as you remember, shows up in the book of Exodus. And what's Moses doing? He's leading the nation of Israel out of Egypt. So the audience for the book of Genesis, the direct audience that the book was written for was the people of Israel. The people of Israel weren't even present in Genesis other than we see uh, Abraham. And Abraham had 70 descendants when he went into Egypt. So it's very clear that uh, the audience, the direct audience of the book of Genesis is the people of Israel. So you say, well, what, what would be the purpose of the book of Genesis for the nation of Israel? Well, two reasons. Number one, it went back to Genesis 12 to show them the heritage. Their spiritual heritage went back to Abraham and Abraham the covenant that God made. And what God was saying to the people through Moses and uh, in, the book, in, in Exodus, he was basically saying, I brought you out of Egypt, but I didn't bring you to leave you alone. There is a covenant that I have to keep, and it's with your father Abraham. The second thing is, it's to show the nation of Israel, who were slaves, who knew the gods of the land, to show them that there was one God over all of creation. He created everything, and that's why we have Genesis 1 and 2, to show the creative power and scope of God. So the book of Genesis is really a contemporary for the nation of Israel, as they're in the wilderness, and as Moses is leading them. So we want to dive into chapter 2 of Genesis. And uh, as I said uh, last weekend, Genesis isn't concerned about giving us a history of the human race or providing scientific answers to the big questions we may have about the cosmos. Uh, you know, we, we have all these questions. How did it happen? What was it? You know, what methodology? Was there a big bang? Now, all those are great questions, but those aren't the ones that Genesis is trying to answer. What we're going to look at, though, in Genesis chapter 2 is we're going to see, essentially, what, what, what were the key roles that were given to us by God? Because God gave us, mankind, key roles. And when we understand these roles, we find that our purpose within his universe Sometimes, have you found that you sometimes get that mixed up a little bit? That you feel like you're living, it's your universe, and God kind of, you know, you, you let him weigh in when, when you feel like you need him or something? But let's remember, it's his universe, and we are in his universe. And, and my premise is this, is when we find our purpose, and we live as we were made to live, we will, we will live lives that are pleasing to God, and, and really much more enjoyable. We'll have more joy in our life. So what are those three purposes? Well, the text of Genesis has those. The first one is that we're image carriers. We carry, the, every one of us, everyone that walks into this room this evening, everyone that walks into the UD campus, everyone that walks into the Kennedy campus tomorrow, everyone that walks in carries the image of God. There is a stamp of the image of God in every one of us. I want to read you a passage. It's found in Genesis chapter 1, verse uh, 26 and 27. It's on page 1 of your chair Bible, if you'd like to turn there. I always like to have you look in, into the, the Bible itself, because I think number, there's two reasons. Number one, I want you to, the, the power in, is in the Word of God. Man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so the power is in the Word of God, not in this pastor's mouth or words, okay? Uh, other than what I'm quoting Scripture, all right? The second thing is, I feel like as we interact with the Scripture, we're engaging more of our senses. The more we engage our senses, the better uh, our retention, and the better that we'll get something from the message. And number three, you won't fall asleep. Now, some of you are thinking, you were really just trying to get to number three, and you're trying to be really smooth in that. No, I wasn't. All right. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fishes in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So what does it mean to be an image bearer? There, you know, there's a lot that we can unpack in this. But essentially, it comes down to this, that every person that you lock eyes with, every person that you see, bears the image of God. For this reason and this reason alone, they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. They deserve that. Without reference to their gender, race, or religion. As Christians, we should be on the forefront. We should be on the forefront of, of recognizing the image of God in others. It doesn't matter what color their skin are. It doesn't matter what gender they are. It doesn't matter what religion or what God they worship. They still bear the image of God, and they need to be treated in uh, respect and with dignity. Because God created us as image bearers. Secondly, the image is really a reflection. When you think of an image, an image is a reflection. When you look in the mirror, and, and depending on when you look in the mirror, uh, you see an image of yourself. Sometimes you go, that can't be me. <laughs> and then your wife says, oh, yes, it can, and it is. <laughs> uh, but you, you, you see a reflection. So, uh, in a sense, we are somehow, in some way, a reflection of our Father in Heaven. We are a reflection of that. We bear His image. Um, some of you parents, you look at your children, and you see 
your image physically in them. They look like you. You look like your parents, right? And some of you, you know, in a sense, say, well, I don't look anything like my parents, or I don't know who, it, who my parent is, or whatever. But essentially, if you could see your parent, you would bear the physical resemblance of your, your parent. And in a, sense, uh, in a sense, that's a physical resemblance. But what he's talking about here is uh, there's a spiritual image of God within every one of us. Every one of us bears this. And bearing the image of God means that we find our purpose when we accurately reflect the image of God in us to others. And here's the thing. I want to talk about this next weekend. Everybody's image is broken. It's like taking a mirror and hitting it with a hammer. There's, you know, there's, it's kind of off. And every one of, and some, some of, some people you come in, you, you say there can't possibly be any image of God. I mean, we think of Hitler, Hitler, Stalin, and Pol Pot, and some of these others that it couldn't be. But there is an image of God. It's just very marred by sin. It's very broken. It's, it's just destroyed almost. But what Jesus is saying is that when you call upon me and when you invite me into your life and when I become, when I come into your life, I begin, I begin to remake the image. I heal the image. I bring it back to focus. And, and notice what he says. This is uh, Matthew chapter five. It's on page seven thirty six of your chair Bible. Jesus is going to use a different picture other than a reflection. He's going to talk about a light. And he says this. And he's talking to people who are his followers. He's saying, if you're a follower of me, this ought to be true of you. This, this ought to be true of you. He says, you are the light of the world. This is chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 14. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop. It cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Heavenly Father. Now, this is very interesting, because what he says is that as a follower of Christ, when your light shines the way it's supposed to, when your mirror, when your image begins to reflect the Father the way it should, when that happens, people will say, not, wow, what a person you are. They'll say, what a God. You know, one of the prayers I pray uh, when we get together before with the worship team and those that are directing the whole services on a weekend, uh, we pray, and I, I, I often pray this prayer. I pray, may people leave this place and be amazed, not with the music, not with the message, but with God. And they walk out and say, what an awesome God. And, and that's essentially what Jesus is saying. He says, in the same way, let your good deeds shine out of you for, for, out, for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So Jesus basically says, if you are following me and if I'm remaking that image, more and more people will see me in you and you'll be a true reflection of who I am and they will bring glory to God. His image, essentially what he's saying is, his image and his children should, should be even brighter or more healed. We belong to him we be, as we begin to shine. We find our purpose, we find our satisfaction, we find our joy in him. Everyone is an image bearer, but Christ followers should be the first ones or the ones that bear the image the best. Okay? So that's the first thing we find here, is that everybody has the image of God, but as followers of Christ, we ought to be the ones who show forth the image of God the clearest, and so that people aren't attracted to us necessarily, but they're attracted to Him. They're amazed at Him. They're not amazed with us, they're amazed at Him. They may, they may come to us and say, you know, I don't know what this Christianity thing is, but it's really done wonders for you. <laughs> and you're a much better person than you used to be. So I, I guess I believe in God a lot more than I used to, because if God can do that in you, He must be real. Okay? So that may be a, a witness, <laughs> way, way to get witnesses. And some of you would say, if you knew what I used to be like and what I am now, you would believe in God. Because you see the image of God more and more in my life. But the second thing we're called to be is we're called to be his caretakers. We're called to be his caretakers. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. This is on page 4 of your chair Bible. Notice what it says. The Lord God placed the man into the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat this fruit, you are sure to die. Now I just want to say one quick thing about that. Some people believe that Adam was, was made immortal. And I don't believe he was. I believe Adam was made mortal, and he was kept alive he, by the tree of life. I mean, ultimately, he was kept by the tree of life. And essentially, uh, he needed to be with God and draw his life and his sustenance from God, from the presence of God. And so the day that he was banished from the garden was the day he began to die. He couldn't sneak back in and eat from the tree of life because there were guardians on the gate of heaven. Remember the angels. We'll see that uh, next week in Genesis 3. But here's the thing I want you to see. God places man in the garden to care for it. And notice this, this command was given before the fall. So Adam had a job. He had a work, okay? Uh, before sin, before anything was wrong with the world, uh, there was work. So work is not something, because some people say work and uh, having to go to work and work is part of the curse. Now, I think part of the curse is work's become a lot harder, you know, and more difficult, and things don't always work out well, right? But work is not a result of the fall. Um, I believe, uh, very clearly, that we're going to work in heaven. We're going to have jobs. 
mean, really, you want to sit around in heaven? I mean, how long can you sit around? You're going to have work. And you know what? Like, it's going to be one of those jobs, one of those things where you've had them before where you felt like, man, I really was used. I really, I, things really went well. I was able to accomplish so much. And I feel good about, you know, just, just a great day. And, and, and heaven, that's what it's going to be like. But let's go back to the garden. God places man into the garden to care for it. And notice his command was before the fall, before sin. But we also see the creation. We think of the creation, and we looked at that last week, and the creation was God's work. What was he doing there? What was God doing? Now, we often go to the Genesis 1, and we say, well, God's doing, he's taking nothing, and he's creating something. But really, if you read through the book of Genesis, what he's essentially doing is he's taking, he's taking uh, disorder and bringing order. That's essentially what he's doing, and every day he's doing that. And so, he, his creative power is taking things that are in disorder and bringing order to them. Now, do I believe that God is the author of every bit of matter and every part of the universe? Absolutely. But when you look at what, the, what God is doing here, he is uh, bringing things from disorder to order. So, work is part of the image of God. Now, God works. And uh, it's part of his creative being. God signed the care, the order, and the operation, uh, as we see. And again, we said this book was written to the Jewish people who are out in the wilderness, the Hebrew people who are out in the wilderness. And very shortly, Moses is going to get instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And we know that the Levites and the priests were in charge of the care, the, the transportation, and the function of the tabernacle. And essentially, I believe that's kind of what Adam is in charge of here. He's in charge of the garden, which is God's tabernacle. It's the presence of God. And he's to manage it. He's to care for it. He's to be the caretaker of that garden, of that tabernacle. And so he is. Uh, this is a picture for the nation of Israel of what they are going to do. So God signed Adam and Eve, the care, the order, and the operation of the garden, God's temple on earth. Now, our work, I believe, today is similar to the creative work of God. In Genesis 1, God brings order from disorder. The focus is really on God, and not on God making stuff, but on putting things into their proper order and function. And that's how we should see our work, bringing order to disorder, helping people and things function in the way that God intends them to function. I mean, essentially, when you think about it, that's essentially what it, what it is. I mean, some of you this weekend are going to work on your yard, your garden, right? And what are you going to do? You're not going to dump new soil. Well, maybe you will dump new soil. I don't know how bad your, your garden and your yard is. But essentially, you're going to bring order, right, to the chaos that happened oh, since the fall and the winter, right? You say chaos all over. I have to get out there. I've got to hack things down. I've got to dig things up. I've got to plant things. I've got to renew things. And so, uh, in a sense, some of us have jobs. Where we're, we're, we, what we're, moms, I mean, come on, mom, what are you doing all, all day long? If you have little ones, you're bringing order out of disorder, right? <laughs> you're changing diapers, you're cleaning, you're, you're cooking, you know, you're, you're doing all of this, this hard work of bringing order to disorder. Sometimes you, you say those words that moms often say, I just cleaned that, and it's gone to disorder, right? Now here's the thing. One of the reasons we generally don't like to work, or we don't like our work or our job, is because we're trying to find value and worth in it. Now, a job, a good job, can give us value and worth. And men, uh, you're notorious for this. I'm going to pick on men because I can do that. And you can come and argue with me afterwards and I'll just say, okay, whatever. Uh, but uh, essentially, men generally look for their worth and their uh, feeling good about who they are through their job, through their work. But here's the problem with that. Oftentimes, your boss doesn't appreciate you. Your clients take advantage of you. If you're a mother, many times your worth and uh, feeling like you are, uh, you know, you're good about yourself comes through raising your children. And that can be a good or bad thing. But you know what? Sometimes you mothers work and you bend over backwards for your kids and you never hear those magical words. Thank you. And you wonder, well, what am I doing here? See, what I'm saying is that when you look to your job or you look to your kids and you say, this is what is going to make me feel good about myself, it's going to give me worth, it's going to, oftentimes, and that's why when we have a, a three-day weekend, we go, thank you. Because I don't want to have to go in and work with people that I don't generally like and not be appreciated for how hard I work and I need time off. I think we, we often lose when we ask our jobs or our kids or families to define us. Um, some see work as a curse or a necessary evil. But what if we saw work as an opportunity? What if we saw work as bringing glory to God? Would that change our jobs at all? Would it? Uh, for instance, I remember a number of years ago I was watching a show and it was uh, about an emergency room. And the emergency room had gone through an especially bad day shift. And there was blood all over. And it was uh, one emergency after another. And it was a disaster after another. And it was just in and out. And there people dying. And it was just, it was dismal. And at the end of the night, one of the doctors is getting ready to leave. And uh, things have quieted down. And there's a, a janitor working in the, in the ER room, mopping. And much of what he's mopping up is blood. And he's singing uh, kind of a spiritual song. And the doctor stops. And he's just 
stunned by this because he's thinking, how in the world could you be doing what you're doing and be singing a spiritual to God at this moment? And he questioned the, the, the janitor and he said, well, how in the world can you be doing this? And how can you be, you know, uh, upbeat and happy and, and joyful? And, and he says, you know, if I was just looking at this from a human level, there would be no reason to do that. But I'm here worshiping God. I'm here to serve God. I'm here to clean up this place and make it perfect for my Lord. And change his whole perspective. I thought it was a powerful message. Let me give you another one. Some of you have read the book Chariots of Fire. And you know of Eric Liddell, who was a Christian, and he had convictions that he would not run on the Sabbath. He would not run on Sunday. One of the races in the 1924 Paris Olympics was on a Sunday. So he forfeited the chance to win it, and he was, he was likely to win a gold medal. And, he, and I want to get into a debate where he should have or shouldn't have run today. It probably wouldn't be an issue. And that day it was an issue, and he took a stand on it. And he forfeited that medal in the, in the 1924 Olympics. His uh, closest, uh, part, the person that he would always run against, and they were neck and neck, was Harold Abrams. Abraham. And he was uh, also seeking a gold medal. Uh, but he was trying to prove himself. At one point, he said of his sprint event, here's what he said about the sprint that he was in, the same one that uh, Eric was in. He said, I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. I've got 10 seconds to justify my existence. Think about living up to that kind of pressure. Essentially, what he's saying is, I need to be fast to prove that I matter, that I exist, that my life is some sort of me. You lose a race and you're dead. You look to a job, and, and the boss says you're fired, and you've been working your tail off, and there's no justifiable reason, and you go, what's my life all about? Liddell, though, on the other hand, simply wanted to please God who had already accepted him. He was once asked by his sister, or he said to his sister, he said, she said, why do you run? And she, he said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Do you see the different motives? One says, I run to justify myself. The other says, I'm already justified. I run to please God. I run to please God. So you can perform any job, any job, you can perform for the glory of God. Uh, look at the, the point I want you to see is this. When we work for significance, it will always elude us. But we, when we find our acceptance in him, our work takes on a new and higher purpose. But maybe the problem, maybe you have a terrible boss, or you have people that are difficult to work with, or you have a job that's physically or emotionally taxing. When, if you were to walk in and say, God, I'm walking in today to bring order from disorder. I'm walking in to worship you. I'm walking in, I'm already justified by you, but I'm not going in to get my value today because you've given me value. I'm going in today to serve you, to worship you. It will change everything. Here's the last thing. We are his created community. God created us for community. Notice Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It's on page 4. Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper who is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. The man chose a name for each one. He gave the name to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right for him. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. While the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. By the way, and I don't have a lot of time to get into this, but it's very likely that we've taken this English word rib, and it really means essentially what, it, what the Hebrew word can mean is it's cut in half. So maybe we shouldn't think of it as an operation. Because essentially what God is doing is he's, he's taking half of Adam and making a, a woman. In other words, the point is, she's a perfect fit. And, and he says, you're bone my bone, my flesh, my flesh, you're perfect, you know. Essentially that's what he's saying here. But let's move on. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last the man said, this is now bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now, whether we're single or married, we can never really uh, be fulfilled completely without having a relationship with God. It's very clear that Adam's relationship was primarily first with God before Eve came in. So it tells us that we're multidimensional creatures, that we are spiritual creatures that need a relationship with our creator, that God created in us a desire, a need, a hunger for him. That's very clear. But also, we have a need for human relationships. And that's very clear from this passage. So, the first relationship for Adam was with God. The second one was with Eve. And when we change the order of these relationships, uh, that's where we lose both. 
Uh, can I just say this? Um, essentially, if you are married, if you allow your relationship to your husband and wife to be the primary relationship above and beyond uh, the relationship you're having with God, you are going to lose both relationships because they're going to be out of whack. Your first primary relationship has to be with God. And once you have that, and you have to have them both at the same time. You can't just say, well, I'm going to have this one and then I'll have this one. You do it at the same time. But priority-wise, you need to have this relationship with God going. What I see, when a marriage is struggling, I know, I just know it. It's true in my life that my relationship with God is, is not right. It's not good. That's the problem. And, but I have to have that before I can have this. And, and by the way, kids are number three. So sorry, kids, you're number three. And you'll always be number three in a healthy family. You'll never be number one. You'll never be number two. You're always going to be number three. And that's the way God intended it to be. It's just this. Now, the other thing that is true is we can easily come to this passage and say, okay, there it is. It says here that essentially that what we need is we all need to be married because unless we're married, we're not kind of fulfilling Genesis. And I think that's why we need to be careful about what, we're, what he's saying here. He's making a general statement about the human race. And he's saying that men and women need to be together, that we need community. And he is holding up the, the, uh, the, uh, Marriage. He is certainly doing that. But is he saying that if you are single, then you are missing out? That there's, there's, there's a part of life that, you'll, that you, you just haven't lived. So you're, and I just want to say, uh, very clearly, the New Testament has something to say about that. So I want you to jump quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, page 874. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32, page 874. Because I want you to see what all of Scripture has. We don't have time to go into this. But I just want you to see Because you may be here and you may be single. And you may say, you know, you can have an idol to get to want to be married. Right? You can have an idol to, to find that right person saying, well, if I can just marry this one right person, then they will make me feel good about who I am. And that's why I say, that's the wrong way to walk into a marriage. And maybe you shouldn't even worry about that. Uh, the Bible says something about singleness, and I want you to hear that. Page 874, 1 Corinthians 732. Paul says this. The Apostle Paul, he says, I want you to be free from all from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work. You can substitute a married woman. It's the same thing. He's going to say that, but I don't have time to go there. And thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are uh, divided. So clearly Paul is instructing those who are uh, not married to leverage their freedom for the kingdom of God. He's saying if you're not married and you don't feel compelled to be married, you're okay. In fact, you can leverage your freedom for the kingdom of God. You don't have concerns of a family, of a wife, of a husband, of kids. You don't have that concern, so you can leverage that. It's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. We're made to love and serve God. And this is the real point of marriage and singleness in the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. That we're made to love and serve God. That's what we're, and God provides us with those marriage relationships if that's what we desire. It's not a sin, it's not wrong, it can be great. It can be good. It can be very good. But it doesn't have to be. And sometimes churches say, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you married? And Paul says, you don't have to be married. You can be single. And you can still thrive. You can leverage that for the kingdom of God. What we tend to do is we often choose between marriage and singleness for the basic motive of personal fulfillment uh, or the continuing of a family legacy. And maybe that's not the best way, reason or the best way to choose whether I should be married or not. That I, I'm looking for personal fulfillment or I'm looking to, fulfill, I'm looking to continue a, a family legacy. Maybe we are called to uh, remain single on, uh, and on the basis we can serve and be best used for the kingdom of God. So whether we are married or single as Christians, we're part of this new community. And this new community is the church. And so what Paul is saying, what the New Testament says is that when we come to Christ, we become part of a new community. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a new family. We are part of a new community. And we're to lift each other up. We're to care for it. We're to love one another. There's always one another state. That's where that comes in. And so we often choose marriage uh, on this continuing family life to your personal. And we, maybe we ought to look at it and say, how can I best leverage the, the time and the talent and treasure that God has given me? To be part of his kingdom. To be used in his creation the way I was intended to be used. How can I do that? And then it may be that that would be getting married. It may be being single. Each person has to determine for themselves. So Adam, like us, needed community. We all need to connect with God and with others. And God called us, and God, God called his church to become his new community. And we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Genesis has a number of things to say to us. And it may be that the Holy Spirit will take one of these areas and say, you know, um, I'm an image bearer. Or I'm coming in contact with image bearers. Is my image becoming more like it's meant to be? It should be. Am I functioning in the way that, that God intended to be? Are people glorifying God because of me? Am I bringing order, you know, yeah, secondly, am I bringing, um, um, am I work? Am I looking to my work for significance or am I finding my significance in him? And looking at my work is an opportunity to bring order out of disorder. To make it a better place. To leave it better than when I, when I was first there. And then, you know, the last, the last part as we come down to this whole thing of uh, how can I best leverage uh, whether I'm single or married because I need community with God and I need community with others. And we have a church community. But, but, but going even more personal, do I need to be married or can I remain single? And the answer is yes and yes. Yes and yes. So we've gone a little bit out of the book of Genesis to answer some of those questions to give balance to that. But I hope one of those areas, the God will take those and say, this is, a, this is the area that I'd like you to focus on. Or maybe this will be an encouragement to you. Or 
Maybe you need to stop asking your family and job to do things that only God can do. You know, the Spirit of God will take that to your heart. So I want to lead us in prayer. Would you stand with me? We'll be dismissed after we sing. So, Father, we come to you knowing that you have a perfect plan for our life, that you are the creator of the universe, that you have made us in your image, that work isn't a curse, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for people to see Christ in us. It's an opportunity to bring order to disorder, that you created us for community, created us to be with others. And in the New Testament, we see that to be the church, the fulfillment of that ultimate human community. Father, help us not to allow the priorities of our relationship with you to take preeminence over our relationship, our, our, our relationship with one another to take preeminence over our relationship to you, especially as a husband and wife or even a parent and child. We ask, Father, that uh, you would help us to find our place in this universe where we can leverage our time and our talent and our treasure for your kingdom and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.